the holy and undivided Trinity. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Good morning. This parable, the parable of the unjust manager, the unjust steward, is my favorite parable and really helps me understand how I'm supposed to live my life. <laughs> Said no one ever. In fact, I'm going to tip my hand because I'm going to skip straight to the end of my sermon today. I'm going to finish up by reading that paragraph to you. This is a selection from a book by a priest named Robert Capon, and I just noticed the name of the, of the chapter. I didn't see this until I started preaching at 8. It says, The Hardest Parable. <laughs> that is absolutely true. So, I may have good news for you, I may have bad. The good news is, if you do not know what that meant, you are in good company. <laughs> and the bad news is, if you hope that I'm going to explain it all to you, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> I'm not, to be honest with you, entirely sure what we're supposed to take away. I'm almost persuaded that we are supposed to leave a little confused. Most scholars actually believe that what we read this morning as a gospel is actually cobbled together pieces of several different writings, and that's why there are so many non sequiturs in there. Because take any one line out of it, and I get it, well, some of them, I get you cannot serve God and wealth. How it follows from a story about a manager cheating on billing the tenants and then being praised by the owner of the land for it is not immediately clear to me. <laughs> and when we get to these lines about the children of light not being as good at discerning the times as the, the children of darkness in this church, I don't know what they're talking about. I honestly don't. But I do see some themes. I do see some ideas that might help, that might have something to do with it. But, but before we go into that, let me just uh, spend a little time with the parable itself. What you've got here, as, often is, as, as is often the case in the Gospels, is a parable followed by Jesus kind of explaining the parable. And it is generally thought in the Gospels, that whenever you see that structure, parable followed by explanation, that all the explanation was added later because people who read the original thing heard Jesus tell this story and said, what? <laughs> and so the explanation was supposed to help them understand. This is not one of those parables. It does not help at all. In fact, it makes it far more confusing. But even the parable itself, let's take a look at this. I've never liked this parable, and partly because I'm not sure who I'm supposed to identify with. Because most parables, in fact all parables, are designed to draw you in. You cannot read a parable correctly if you are not willing to entertain the idea that you are one of the characters and try to experience 
the story from that character's point of view. That's the whole point. They're more than just simple allegory. For you to get the point of the story, you have to empathize with one of the characters. It's usually obvious who it is, but not in this story. So we have this um, manager, steward, who maintains property for a landowner, and a story comes back about the steward that he has been squandering the holdings, squandering the land. So the, so the owner says, give me an accounting of your work because you can't be my manager any longer. Right away, I'm wondering what either one of them was thinking. <laughs> because the manager goes then to the tenants and asks them questions like, what do you owe my master? Because he doesn't already know. And then they, for some reason, apparently truthfully, tell him, oh, I owe him this much grain or this much olive oil, and it's a lot. Can you imagine calling your bank and saying, uh, I called to let you know how much I owe on my house now. Um, I'm pretty sure it's $5. And they'd say, well, you know, knock half off that as a good, good customer discount. <coughs> I have to admit that maybe this was not the best manager of the land if he did not himself already know. And the landowner, how could he possibly entitle to anything if he doesn't know? But that's what happens. So the, the manager goes and asks these landowners, what do you owe? And it's a heavy burden. These numbers, the units are weird, but trust me, we're talking about a whole lot of wheat and a whole lot of olive oil. That would be burdensome on any farmer even today, much less in this time. It's as if they are, un that they are heavy laden. It's as if they are, they are operating under a heavy burden. And so that makes our mind go to sin. Maybe that's it. Maybe this is a story about the burdens of sin and that we're going to learn something about forgiveness, that God is, is quick to forgive part of our sin so that we owe less on it, and I don't get it. <laughs> so, so much for identifying with the tenants. Maybe we're supposed to identify with the manager. Maybe we're supposed to understand something about what it's like to be both generous and compassionate by stealing from someone else, <laughs> who then thanks us and says, I commend you because, what does it call it? That he's, uh, he's wily, he's, he's what? Shrewd. shrewd. That he's shrewd. Well, we learned uh, a couple of weeks ago from Ed that sometimes these words don't mean what we think they mean. So, um, because I don't know the true interpretation of this parable, and believe me, I've read a lot on this, and no one seems to know, there are a lot of theories. Let me put one out there for you. My theory is that we need to, to turn these words just a little bit, or turn our understanding of these words just slightly. 
So the word shrewd might mean wise, might mean perceptive, that we can see some things that aren't readily apparent to people whose, whose head is in the details. And let's look at the word wealth. Wealth, there's nothing else in the context of this parable that would suggest uh, an aversion to accumulating money. In fact, that's exactly what they're doing, is accumulating money. That doesn't seem to be the problem. The problem seems to be, in the larger context of lostness and being found, and of Pharisees, and of Jesus' new teaching, reinterpreting the law in the light of generosity and compassion, the, the, the issue around wealth seems to be an insistence on getting the accounting right. And that idea is supported because at the very beginning of the gospel, the manager says, you can't be my manager anymore, so give me an accounting of your management. In other words, as Sally Brown so famously said in Charlie Brown Christmas, all I want is what's coming to me. All I want is my fair share. The problem with that in our lives as we know it is that if we were to get what we're entitled to, can you imagine? Can you imagine getting what you deserve? I don't mean for just the things you'd like to have considered. I mean for all the things you've ever done or failed to do or said or thought. Would you really like to get what you're entitled to? But a preoccupation with the accounting and of getting everything neatly arranged so there's a tight, tight economy of I win when you lose, that seems to be what they're concerned with. Maybe. I'm not sure. I might be wrong. But as I hear these words, I hear them in a different context from a movie. It's a movie I know you know, I know you've seen it, 1947, Miracle on 34th Street. And I was reading this, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I was considering the position of the landowner, and what's going to happen when this steward goes back and says, hey, guess what? I cut all the debts by a whole lot, so you're getting pennies on the dollar, and he seems happy about it. I was trying to figure out how to interpret that, and my mind went straight to Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street. Bear with me. So you may remember that early in the story, Chris Kringle, who's this kindly man who looks like Santa Claus because, in fact, he is, happens upon the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and the Santa Claus they've hired to ride on the, on the float turns out to be drunk, so they fire him. And Kris Kringle becomes the new Santa Claus heading into the big, busy Macy's Christmas season. A big spending time back in the days before Amazon. <laughs> Macy's was everything in New York. The department store and the toy department was a big deal right before Christmas. They needed the best Santa Claus that they could get. And the guy who ran the toy department's name was Mr. 
Shellhammer. Is that a wonderful name? Mr. Shellhammer was preoccupied with getting everything he deserved, with a good accounting. He wanted not just to make a lot of money, he wanted to make sure everything was efficient. There's a lot of themes of efficiency in this movement, and it's not always a good thing. So Mr. Shellhammer goes to Kris Kringle, un, not realizing that he actually is the real Santa Claus, and he, and he says, here are a list of some of the toys we're overstocked on. So when some of those kids, maybe they're not so sure what they want for Christmas, you steer them toward these, and we make a lot of money. Get it? And Chris Kringle thinks that's troubling, but he can't decide what to do with it, except be angry. This even happens to Jesus sometimes. There are times when Jesus finds himself upset, knowing this is just not right, and it's some other character who has to come and set him straight. In the case of Chris Kringle, it's a character who, whose actor is not even named in the credits, but the actor's name is Alvin Greenman, and he plays the part of Alfred, the kid who just sweeps up and cleans the place. He's a lowly actor playing a lowly role in Miracle on 34th Street. And after Santa, or Chris Kringle has been out on his first shift as Santa Claus, he comes back to the locker room where he's supposed to change out of his Santa costume into street clothes. But Santa costume is his street clothes because he's Santa Claus, only he has a better Santa suit. So Alfred is over here sweeping up in the locker room and he says to Chris, gee, that sure is an elegant costume. And Chris says, oh yes, he's talking about his own, the, the real Santa suit. He says, yes, I've had it for years and years. And Alfred says, sure makes a bum out of the one Macy's gave you. Even that one's better than the one I wear. And Chris says, you, Alfred? He says, I play Santa Claus over at the Y near our block. No kidding. And Alfred says, started about three years ago. They had a costume, but I did, it didn't have no padding. And since I carry my own padding around with me, I got the job, see? And Chris Kringle is fascinated and annoyed. He thinks it's an interesting story, but this guy is cheating. He's pretending to be Santa Claus, and I'm Santa Claus. So he says, you enjoy impersonating me? And Alfred says, oh yeah, well why? And Alfred says, I don't know. And I think this may be the key to the parable, hang on. I don't know. When I give packages to the little kids, unconcerned you'll notice with what he's getting for Christmas or what he's got coming to him. When he goes and gives everything that he has to these kids at the Y, I like to watch their faces get that that Christmas look all of a sudden. It makes me feel kind of good and important. Well, I don't think it's about feeling good and important. I think it's about being good and important. And if there's one thing we know about these stories of lostness and foundness, it's that Jesus never really can find us until we are truly lost. In other words, the more self-sufficient we are, 
The more we have an accounting for our own lives and we can fend for ourselves, and I have a nice house and a nice family and I'm smart and I have a job and I have money and I have talent and I have all these things and I have friends and I'm going to have a good Christmas because I'm going to go to Macy's and buy it and take it home with me. The more we do for ourselves, the less God is able to give to us. Real foundness in Luke's gospel is always about steering into the death, into the worst case scenario. So kind of like in Harry Potter, if you want to get on track eight and three quarters, you can't just feel gently on the brick wall, you'll get nowhere. You have to take everything you own and run with all your might towards certain disaster, toward a brick wall, and then you pass right through to where you're called to be. So I'll stop for a second and say, what could this parable possibly be about? What is lost and what is found? I think maybe what is lost, if we're honest, is us. Maybe that's obvious. But how many times have you had the experience of working really hard in your job, working really hard on your relationships, thinking you're doing well, and yet you can't seem to stop tripping over yourself. You can't seem to get away from misfortune, from calamities, from problems that are happening, some of which are in your control and some are not. But no matter how hard you try, you feel like you just can't get ahead, you can't win, and you're actually losing ground despite your best efforts. That's a lostness that can only be filled by resetting the scoreboard. And to do that, candidly, requires a little dishonest management. It requires being something like this dishonest steward. So after speaking with Alfred, Chris has an idea. He goes back out onto the floor, and a little boy named Peter sits in his lap. And Chris Kringle begins talking to him and asking him what he wants for Christmas. And Peter says that he wants a fire truck. And he tells him in great, deal, in great detail what the fire truck is like. And how he knows his mom is worried that he'll break something with it. But I promise I'll be good. It's going to work. And his mom, played by Thelma Ritter, is off behind him. And she's going. <laughs> and she's saying, they're sold out. Everybody's sold out. They're, we can't get one. And Chris just keeps smiling and nodding. And then he looks down at Peter and he says, well, I'm sure a good boy like you will find a big fire truck under the tree on Christmas Day. And he's like, oh, boy. And, uh, and Thelma Ritter cuts him this look, if looks could kill. And she says to Peter, listen, you wait over there. Mama wants to thank Santa Claus, too. <laughs> and after Peter walks away, she says, say, what's the matter with you? Don't you understand English? I tell you, Macy's ain't got any. Nobody's got any. You've been all over. My feet are killing me. A fine thing, promising a kid. We see this all over scripture. People, especially women, coming to Jesus and saying, stop raising expectations. Stop creating hope when we've seen nothing but failure and loss. 
It's a reasonable complaint. But like Jesus, Chris knows more. So he answers. Now, you don't think that I would have said that unless I were sure, do you? You can get those fire engines at Schoenfeld's on Lexington Avenue, only $8.50, a wonderful bargain. She goes, Schoenfeld? I don't get it. Oh, I keep, trap of the toy mar- uh, I, keep, I keep track of the toy market pretty closely. Does that surprise you so? Surprise me? Macy's sending people to other stores. Are you kidding me? And Chris says, well, the only important thing is to make the children happy. Well, maybe this is a, an imperfect metaphor. Jesus doesn't promise we're always going to be happy. What he does promise in John's gospel is I came to bring you life and life in abundance. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's ephemeral. It's hard to grasp. That's why it takes so many parables. That's why it's, it involves steering into death and then into resurrection before you can get there. But if we're willing to die to ourselves, to our own need to control, we can live a new life, not in death, but, but here and now. That's the promise. And those who are able to let go of the accounting that we're always taking, to tally up our own scores, those are the people who are going to get a peek at that abundant life that Jesus is talking about. And again, I think that's what Chris Kringle is talking about in different words. Well, the only important thing, as they said, is to make sure the children are happy. That is, he's cheating. He's sending you to another store. Chris Kringle is a dishonest Santa. He's a dishonest steward. He is cheating Mr. Macy and sending customers to Schoenfeld. That can't be a good thing, right? Whether Macy or someone else sells the toy, Chris continues, it doesn't make any difference. Don't you feel that way? And she says, huh, who, me? Oh, yeah, sure, only I didn't know Macy's did. And a lot of people don't know that God did. And Chris says, as long as I'm here, they do. And she says, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Just like I say, I don't get this parable. Well, a couple of scenes later, the same woman, Thelma Ritter, walks up to Mr. Shellhammer, who's all flustered because he's just heard Chris send another family off to still another store to get skates that cost less and are of better quality. And she walks up to Mr. Schoenfeld, uh, Schoenhammer, excuse me, um, filled with, with packages, and she says, pardon me, the guard said I should speak to you. You're the head of the toy department, right? Well, yes, madam, but at the moment I, well, listen, I want to congratulate you and Macy's on this wonderful new stunt you're pulling. Imagine sending people to other stores. I don't get it. Why it's, and he says, it certainly is. <laughs> he's, he's like the brother in that prodigal son story. He wants everything to be in order and proper and a good accounting to be made. It certainly is. You said it, she says. Imagine a big outfit like Macy's, pulling the spirit of, putting the spirit of Christmas ahead of the commercial. It's wonderful. 
Well, I'll tell you, I never done much shopping here before, but I'll tell you one thing, from now on, I'm gonna be a regular Macy customer. You can almost imagine her saying, I once was lost, but now I'm found. <laughs> so we cut ahead to another scene. In Shellhammer's office, his head is in his, in his hands on his desk. And the secretary walks in and says, there are six more women who want to thank you. And he says, not now, I've got to think this thing over. And she says, well, personally, I think it's a wonderful idea too. And he says, you think so. These women think so. The point is, will Mr. Macy think so? Well, the parable has an answer to that. The dishonest steward is praised by the landowner. Why? Because he's going to get more in return out of the relationship than he would have gotten if he insisted on what he was due. So now to the end of that parable chapter, the hardest parable, and what Capon has to say. Capon takes the words of this story and weaves them with other stories of scripture that more obviously tell us what Jesus is up to and maybe paints a portrait of what's happening here. And the Lord praised the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. For the children of this world are shrewder in their generation than the children of light. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth and his own people did not receive him. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and finding himself merely human, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, death on the cross. Therefore God himself exalted him and graced him with a name that is above any other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's Jesus's own emptying that makes possible our abundant life. And we are called to follow. And what looks like sacrificing everything because we're shrewd enough to know that it's for everything. Lucky for us, Capon says, we don't have to deal with a just reward. Amen.